Hello and welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks and these sorts of four-letter words are few and far between. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and in today's episode, we speak to Professor Kirsten Hextrom, the author of the recently published Special Admission, How College Sports Recruitment Favors White Suburban Athletes, and an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Hextrom is also a former NCAA Division I two-time national champion rower and a recognized expert on college sport access, equity, and diversity. I hope you enjoy hearing Professor Hextrom explain the connections between meritocracy, ideology, and what she considers to be the entrenched myth of a level playing field in college sports. So please join me for an eye-opening discussion about missed educational opportunities, class and race, and the power of college sports to misguide millions of American youth. going? It's going well, Professor. How are you today? Good, good. I'm really excited to learn more from you. And I know that you're very busy. So should we just dive in or are you ready to go? Okay. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show and congratulations on the publication of your book, Special Admission with Rutgers University Press. I really enjoyed the book and I'm eager to ask a lot of questions about it, but I want to begin with a couple of questions Uh, about you and your relationship to sports. What was the first sport you played? Oh, thank you. Happy to be here and excited to talk about the book. And thank you for the congratulations. I think the first sport I formally played was soccer, maybe kindergarten, youth league. Uh, And I do remember my dad was the coach. So sports are a really big part of our family. My dad played football at Cal, also was on the rugby team and then played rugby internationally. So I grew up with that kind of myth of sports hero in my family. But I will say where my dad differed from other dads of that era when I was growing up in the 90s was recreational and outdoor sports that are non-competitive are really central to our family. Just as important as being on a sports team. It was, grew up um, in Northern California, doing a lot of hiking, biking, swimming with that kind of non-competitive bent to it. So one of those sports actually might've been my first, probably just remember biking really before I can even remember and walking and running and and all of that sort of stuff. And did you have a particular favorite? Oh gosh, that's hard. I can very much say what I didn't like, which my mom put me in ballet and it was a huge struggle. I hated it. And she forced me to stay in it uh, for way too long. And you can't see me since we're, you can't see my full height, but I'm a pretty tall person and I was tall and pretty substantially sized as a young kid. And so really did not fit in well with ballet, but I did a lot of sports, just really recreationally, didn't necessarily gravitate towards one, enjoyed soccer. By the time I got into high school, I had zeroed in on basketball and volleyball and really loved, enjoyed those sports, but wasn't on the track to do either of those at the college level. Uh-huh. But I understand that you did uh, do sports at the college level. You were a, a national champion in rowing. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, so how did the- you switch from those other sports to rowing? Yeah. So rowing is a peculiar sport at the this moment in time, which is we have a lot more opportunities, particularly for women at the college level than exists at the youth level mm-hmm. and exists at the high school level as well. And so you have college rowing teams that are actually trying to 
seek out athletes to fill their rosters. And so, as I had mentioned, my dad had played football at Cal and was connected, or I think the story was he was at like a tailgate of some kind and had met one of the rowing coaches and had said, oh, I have a daughter that's coming to Cal in the fall or at some point in time. And the coaches were like, is she as tall as you? Because my dad's six, five um, mm-hmm. and had played sports and They're like, not quite, but pretty tall. And so then I had gotten connected with the coaches and essentially, you know, knew zero about the sport. And one of the coaches at the time really liked to recruit walk-ons like or find people on the campus that were tall and had this athletic history and was just a phenomenal mentor, was able to take a group of us that had no experience in the sport and within a pretty short period of time, help us develop our athletic abilities I will say, so this is what a lot of people don't understand about uh, rowing. I had spent my whole life playing sports. I came in very physical. It wasn't my first time becoming an athlete. And so a lot of what the coach does is help you tap into those skills you might have, like hand-eye coordination, being able to have a sense of your body, where it is in space, your lung capacity. And it's, it's a lot more about figuring out how to translate some of those skills you already have into rowing. I have never seen someone who's never done a sport before become a a successful rower at the college level. I I think that's a misnomer about the sport. You need some kind of base physicality to get into it. And so were most of your teammates transplants from other sports as well? Yeah. So at that time, and and this is something that changed actually. So if folks want to know exactly how old I am, I was at Cal (laughs) in 2003 to 2007. And so by the time I started actually studying rowing as a researcher, is around 2015. And by that point, teams that used to be 50 to 60% of these walk-ons or people who've never done the sport, all of a sudden are going to be 95% recruited athletes. They've done the sport at the high school level. So there, the sport really grew and shifted, I think, in that decade that I was no longer a part of it. And that's particularly true for, I think, the big time universities that have these rowing programs. So when I was on the team, absolutely, I think it was maybe half of my teammates had done it in high school, but the majority had found it when they were in college and, and joined the team that way. And what do you attribute that growth to in that 10 year period? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a growth in general building, maybe we'd say more of a 30-year period in developing these privatized pay-to-play youth leagues have cropped up across all sports. And I think rowing is swept up in that. Rowing has, unlike other sports like soccer that did exist within school systems, rowing has always existed at the, the club level and really doesn't have a big footprint within our schools. But I think rowing, like all the other sports, this intensification at the youth level of finding more and more specialization in terms of paying to play for getting, again, finding clubs or private coaching and whatnot. This is a trend that's happening you know, across all sports. And so my best guess would be rowing is one of those ones that's gotten swept up in that. And just as part of any of the other trends that have been occurring in, in youth sports. It's almost part of the industrialization of youth sports, if you will, something like that. Okay, (laughs) very interesting. So with rowing, this was a new love, a new sport to you in college. And what was it like being a college athlete in that particular sport? I'm sure you had friends or fellow students who were playing the sports you had played in college. Did Mm -hmm. it differ at all between their experiences and yours? Absolutely. Yeah. Love is a tricky word for rowing. I think Okay. <laughs> what's difficult about when you join the sport 
is you join in the fall and with the start of the school year, and you really don't actually get on the water and get a sense of what it's like to actually row until you get later into the spring. So my first year was just running stairs, doing lots of heavy conditioning, not doing lots of weightlifting, training at a really grueling level. And that's true for the sport writ large. And I would say I was one of those people that like stuck with it because I was like, okay, I grew up in a family that says, if you commit to something, you need to do it for at least a year. But mm-hmm. I, that my whole first year was like, I'm going to quit. This is terrible. Um, but it really was, I found a you know wonderful group of teammates that became my roommates and best friends and really kept me. And a couple of them who had been rowers at high school were like, trust me, this sport will get fun. You just have to get in good enough shape for it to be like fun to be on the water and, and to race. And they were right. And so I think I got hooked more towards the end of my freshman year and particularly in my sophomore year when we won a national championship. And when you're at the peak of something, you're, you just, it's really exciting. Yeah. What I, I think I didn't see until later in my life is the, when I was a college athlete, we're very, all college athletes, I think are very isolated in general from the student body. There's a whole bunch of research in this. A lot of it has to do with practice schedules, but also having separate facilities, separate housing, you're cordoned off in this whole other world. But what makes rowing even unique within that world is you're also isolated from other athletes. So we, you're familiar with the Bay Area, we actually trained out in Orinda at mm-hmm. a park called Brownies. So we would get picked up at around 5, 10 in the morning, get in these vans and drive all the way over, you know, from Berkeley to Orinda, train out there for a couple hours, then come back, you know, to campus and go to class. And so we weren't really having those kind of casual interactions with other athletes in the same way. And at that time too, when I was there, we didn't have Berkeley has now since built out more of a unified training center for Olympic sport athletes, but we didn't have that then. But later in my uh, career, when I went back and was working at in student athlete academic services, that's when I really got to know athletes from other sports and Particularly, I worked very close with our football program. And to me, that's where it was both seeing a lot of similarities, like we all, our backs hurt all the time, you're exhausted all the time, but also just seeing these really categorical differences. The first one I really noticed and started talking to my students about was just a sense of autonomy. So Mm -hmm. I had a coach that like trusted us to do workouts on our own. Like we had a pretty rigorous training schedule, but at least once a week was, we would be assigned a workout and we could do it whenever at what point in the day. And that was like a really important sense of autonomy for us as athletes. Like we knew that was one day that we didn't have to show up at, wake up at 5 a.m. It could be a day we could sleep in and it showed that the coach trusted us to do that work. And there's just no sense of that autonomy built into the football schedule. It's every moment of their day, they're being micromanaged, hyper-surveilled and not only in the athletic sense, but also the academic sense and the social sense. And I had a lot more flexibility and freedom and autonomy. And then also there was this big difference in the perception of who you were as an athlete. For a lot of reasons we could get into with race, class, and gender, there was a way in which I could, and my teammates could really blend in, if you will, into the campus environment. And I I didn't have to be seen as an athlete if I didn't want to be. I could be seen as an athlete if I put on very visible athletic gear, but that was something I could choose to dip in and and dip out of. Mm -hmm. Whereas football players, not only because they're these public personas, so people know their face or who they are. Again, with the discrepancy in who's represented where in campus, also just what being a football player builds you out into, you have a very visible physique, they could never escape that. And so I think in certain campus settings, 
you might be celebrated for being an athlete, but you also might be demonized, or maybe you just don't even want to be seen as an athlete. And, mm-hmm. and these were all experiences I did not have to have as a woman athlete at all. I could, again, pick and choose when I wanted to be part of that athletic world or not. That's really fascinating. And so you go from almost wanting to quit this new sport uh, to a national champion twice, I believe. Yes. And then after that, uh, you go into to working with predominantly football players and helping them with their academics. I'm curious because this book is incredibly well researched. It's in the result of a really impressive study that you've done. And there's far more complexity than we could possibly get to today in, in this you know brief interview. But I'm really immediately struck by the the great lengths you go to in order to bring to light some of these darker sides of college sports history and the present as well. So I have to ask, why would a national champion rower want to do that? Oh, thank you for asking that. And thank you for the compliments. As I said at the beginning, sport is probably the most central part of my life. How my family was raised, how I orient myself in the world. If I have free time, I'm going to be spending it hiking or or doing something active. And I think also central to my family was I was being raised with that notion of critique. Like critique is not a bad thing. We should be critical of ourselves, push ourselves to be better. We should push our family members to be better. We should try to be as best as we can in in anything we do. And as you probably know, sport is this institution that is an all or nothing institution. It very much socializes you to think you're either with us or you're against us and you're in it or you're not. And for me, that was really difficult. And particularly as I got further along as an athlete, I started to see that where it was like, oh yeah, you can't, you can't question something your coach or your captain says. And I just never, I think because I was, I had these other influences or mentors that were viewing sport differently, but also just viewing life differently. I don't see that critique as negative. So I don't see it as, you know, I think you could and should be a national champion and also want this thing that you're a part of to be the best it can be. And to be really honest about the history and the institutional inequalities that are baked into what we're doing. And so I did try to, uh, and always return to when I'm telling these stories or researching this topic of trying to do it from that place of love and wanting this to be an institution that doesn't disappear. It should be something we continue, but how can we help it change and grow and become into something that actually uh, would be the most beneficial for all people rather than this, you know, highly elitist, exclusive, harmful entity, which it can be and often is at, at certain times. Thank you. And I definitely want to get to that at the end about the suggestions you make at the end of the book. But let's take the listeners first through the book itself and the argument you make. The first thing I want to highlight are the methods you use. You, I believe, followed a life history approach and interviewed, I think, more than 100 people and then contextualized their experiences. Is, do I understand that right? Am I missing anything? So one minor thing. So I interviewed almost 60 people, and mm-hmm. that counts staff as well as student athletes. But for this book, it's 100 hours. And so I focused on one part of that athlete interview. So about mm-hmm. all 47 athletes who they're, that part of the study is really centered here. We did about two hours of that interview. Okay. And this life history approach, what are the pros and cons as you see them from a methodological standpoint? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So the pro is it's really interviewing as a methodology was often associated with psychology, which they had very tight knit scripts of, you can only ask this set of questions in this order. The interviewer cannot respond um, or have any, show any kind of emotion. 
And it almost functions like a survey that you're not supposed to be interacting with the person. And there's been a bunch of breaks in methodological tradition with that. And there's a long, much longer technology there that I, I won't get into. But for the most part, what life history comes from is this idea that we could never be objective or neutral as the interviewer, that it's each interview should not and could not be replicable identically across the people. And that instead, if the goal is really to learn about someone and what they value, what's important to them, you should give them as much freedom and autonomy to narrate that process as possible. That's the, the main underlying idea. And so in my approach, it was really starting from a similar question you just asked me at the beginning. It was, tell me your first memory of sport and let's start there. And then really you narrativeize what were these important moments in your life, both in sport and school that led you to where you are today. And it was categorizing that. And what was so cool about it and what makes it really hard as a method is you really do get these very individualized stories and yes. everyone has their unique perspective on what they did and went through and their challenges. And yet the hard part as a researcher is to then find patterns across that. In my case, there were really distinct patterns. It actually wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And that really led me to wanting to write this book is that these patterns were almost so obvious. I needed to find a way to make sense of them and, and tell that story. But the tension always is you don't want to um, minimize or take away from the story that someone told you of what's important in their life when you reduce it down to these findings and you want to somehow find a way of honoring their unique vantage point on the topic. And the book's title, of course, is Special Admission. And the subtitle is College Sports Recruitment Favors White Suburban Athletes. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean by favors. Yeah. So I have rowers and track and field athletes in the study. Those were the two sports that I centered as a way to understand actually a much bigger question, which is essentially how do athletes in the non-revenue generating sports navigate higher education because mm -hmm. a lot of our research focuses on the revenue side and um, right. I was curious about the non-revenue side. And I picked rowing and track originally to be able to what I thought would be find kind of maximal contrast in the demographic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so as a rower, but also in the little research that I was available in non-revenue generating sports, it was clear that there was going to be more white, elite, higher income folks are going to be in the sport of rowing. And then there was also this idea that track and field is the most open, accessible sport, that it's you know available to anyone. There should be little to no barriers and access. And so that was why I, I included them and I thought they would be completely different. And one of the things that was so shocking to me in hearing folks' stories is how similar um, the trajectory to college was across those two sports. I would never have guessed that this is why we Absolutely. do research. We shouldn't study something if we already think we know the answer. And one of those striking similarities that I started to really see is that everyone either lived within or right on the periphery of essentially a affluent white, majority white suburb. And so that started, was telling to me about how these communities kind of pool and concentrate resources in a very specific way. And having access to those resources and communities is going to give you an advantage in athletic recruitment. That was one base level finding. And the there's one of the things that was also really interesting about this is that even folks who weren't... Um, 
living in that community, they often had to travel into in order to get access to those resources. So there were a couple lower income folks in my study, but they still basically got permission or granted an exception or were able to do an inter-district transfer of some kind. So you had to have some relationship there. But a lot of that has to do with the infrastructure that's required to do athletics and where that infrastructure lives and the inequities and where those infrastructure is available to, you know, in our society. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you begin the book and in the preface, really contextualizing this issue in a, a very effective way by talking about uh, Rick Singer and mm-hmm. uh, this uh, investigation called Operation Varsity Blues. Rick Singer was one of these 50 individuals indicted in in this operation, and it alleged that there was a college admissions conspiracy, which created side door admission schemes for the ultra wealthy. And so you're right that Singer used the special admission status of athletes to recommend some young wealthy students to admissions. For the privilege of this, their wealthy parents paid, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their child into the colleges of their choice. And you're right that while some have viewed that Singer's actions are deviant, and indeed the allegations by the the federal government toward that end would suggest as much. You suggest that would assume that the current athletic administration process, quote, operates in a fair, transparent, and or equitable fashion. So how does the current athletic admissions process operate, and why is it that you do not believe it to be fair, transparent, and equitable? A lot of what I try to do in the book is actually make athletic admissions situate within things we already know about higher education admissions. And so one of the things that we've known about for a long time with college admissions is you cannot directly pay to get a college acceptance letter. We know this. And that's one of the things that Singer orchestrated, and that's why it was illegal. But we also know that there is absolutely no limit on what a family could invest in a child to try to get them into Harvard. So you can spend... $2 million over the course of a child's life doing extra prep classes, putting them in the best boarding schools. And we also know that those investments do lead to higher um, acceptance rates to elite universities. And this has been studied over and over. And in all the studies they've done into higher education admissions, the one thing that winds up being consistent over and over and over is that class matters and where you fall in the economic stratification in our country is a very strong predictor of whether you'll go to college. And that is not because people in higher incomes are, let's say, smarter, better, whatever we might have. That's again, because they're able to use their wealth in ways to develop a child into something that the college admission system is wanting and what the criteria is that they're looking for in a child. And so I really saw those similar patterns in what was happening within athletics. So the first problem that we see within college athletics is this is the access to sport is not something that is guaranteed equally across the United States at the youth level. This is something that's increasingly privatized, or if it is offered at a public school, it doesn't mean that all the opportunities are offered at the school, that all those opportunities will be equal. And so that might right there is already a big differentiator in who is able to even play a sport to begin with. Then also what we've found is there has been this heightened specialization or industrialization of the youth sport process. So as opportunities have become scarcer and scarcer at the public level, and they've been increasingly privatized, we've also seen this effect of families investing more and more into sports. Sociologists have looked into this as essentially it's becoming really almost a, a norm of like middle or upper class families are 
now seeing good parenting is involving and developing a child in all these extracurricular areas, sports being one of them, that it's not enough for your child to excel in school. They have to excel and be the best across all these areas. And so we see just an outpouring of families with means really seeking out and investing and building out these athletic opportunities as well. And so again, if you have the ability to pay to have access to a sport to begin with, then pay to have supplemental training to become better at that sport. And then the third thing that I also found that was really important to athletes is even if you do both of those things, let's say your family really wants a world-class swimmer in their household. And so they, from age five or investing into someone to become a swimmer, maybe you don't pan out in swimming, but you've already invested in developing that child into an athlete of some kind. And if there are other sports in your community, you could transfer into another sport and then another sport and another sport. And as I told you with my background, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened. I kept that athleticism going until I found a sport that I could have success in. And you'd imagine if there are more opportunities in your area, more chances to do that, you will more likely find a fit for your sport rather than if you grow up in a community that only has two sports available those are going to be your two options. If you don't make it in one of those, you're done. Um, mm-hmm. And you might not have enough resources in your community to even be good in one of those two sports. Mm-hmm. So those are like some of the big structural things that are happening, I think, at the youth level and up into the high school level that are just really shrinking down the pool of possible college athletes. So that's one big effect that's occurring. Then I think the other effect that's occurring is how is it that colleges are designing their athletic admissions process and what's happening on the college end when they are looking out into that pool of of potential athletes. And here's where we get into the opaqueness that's very difficult. And I think the lack of regulation that then can lead to really abuses in the system like we saw with Operation Varsity Blues. So the first thing is there really is no publicly available way you can apply to college as an athlete. So while schools like the UC system have developed, you can go online, you can see what the application is, you can put your name in the ring, you can make sure that you are actually applying to the UC system. There isn't a clear way or uniform way that you would do that at a set of schools across the country that instead really what happens is the way you get into applying to college as an athlete is having some relationship with a college coach who then is going to walk you through that process, get you in, make sure that your application is done in a way that is going to fit whatever that athletic department has developed in terms of their own different set of systems. And they're going to be advocating for you on the back end and ensuring that all of that happens. And so how do you get access to a college coach? How do these things unfurl? And what was really interesting that I found in my study is that a big chunk of the athletes that were recruited weren't recruited just because they were a standout athlete that coaches found them, that they were coaches were scouring the country and and looking, you know, for the best athlete. That what ended up happening is coaches, and I'll just pause for a second here because I don't want to make this look like it's coaches' fault. They are ha- they already have a more than a full-time job, particularly in the Olympic sports. They don't have full-time recruiters working for them. This is something that is put above and beyond on what they're supposed to do. And so I think they fall into this pattern of going to trusted networks that they have at the youth level. So if they know a coach at a high school team has a history of sending college athletes um, or high school athletes off to college, 
that's where they're going to start because they know that might be a more proven program than if there are teams in their backyard, right around their neighborhood in Northern California, for instance, there's tons of youth leagues here. So why travel and look at states in the middle of the country? If you're a California school, you can just pick someone in your backyard, get your team and and then go from there. So what I found was these really entrenched relationships had developed between the college and youth level, where you're essentially referring athletes back and forth between the two. And again, no rules against this. And it's something that you need access to in order to get your name in that ring. As we were saying before, a lot of those access to that are behind pay to play leagues. These are in private clubs. These are in opportunities that flow through privatized specialized camp systems. And so again, you're having to pay to have access to some of the best coaches that are then going to be able to refer you to the college coaches as well. And so that's another area where we're seeing things unfold that by no means would be fair because just because you don't have access to a a line in with a a college coach doesn't mean you shouldn't have a chance at becoming a college athlete. So if I understand the argument correctly, then Singer's actions weren't deviant. He was the guy who got caught in a way. All of these other parents out there may not be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe they don't have that kind of money, but they are spending a lot of money and they're almost directing that money into the wrong place. Like they're putting it into their child who they love and they're giving that child all these resources to be great at X, Y, and Z activity, whether it's school or extracurricular activity, which they perceive to then help them improve their chances of admissions. And in the case of college sports, trying to get that athletic scholarship, they're investing this money and the admissions process rewards them for doing it is what it sounds like you've found. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And the minor difference is that Singer had his clients pay someone at the college for that. Yes. So versus give that, if you put that money in the athlete themselves, totally legal, totally fine. And part of why I also think that the two cases are so similar is if you actually look at what happened with the Laughlins, for instance, mm-hmm. or Massimo or whatever, I forget their last name, but the the most probably high profile example yes. from Operation Varsity Blues. So they could have paid for their two daughters to join a rowing team in Southern California. They had that money. Right. <laughs> they could have put them on the team and they could have been on the team for about a year And because of those teams that were in their neighborhood, in their area, they are very respectable teams that have those connections to college. And instead they just gave that money to Singer to then lie about the fact they were part of those teams. And if they had just actually joined the teams, even if they were mediocre at rowing, they probably could have gotten into USC. And and (laughs) from what I understand, they, they spent enough money that they could have maybe bought a lake. Right. That's too. Mean, privately for their rowing. Exactly. I mean, it, it really does seem preposterous. But I think what's so interesting about your argument is that you're suggesting that this is not deviant behavior per se. It's just an excess or a, it's a question of degree almost. And obviously, we don't want to have a system where parents are paying universities directly to admit their children. And this Operation Varsity Blues exposed the fact that does indeed take place. And I'm sure there's other instances that just haven't been caught of that happening as well, or or a wealthy donor donating money to the university and getting a handshake under the table. But the question of whether the broader system is fair is really what your book is all about. It's not really about Operation Varsity Blues, although you introduced the book that way. So let's get into that argument Mm -hmm. because it is complex. So 
To me, in my reading of the book, and please, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that your book is an indictment of the racial and class-based fractures of American society. Mm -hmm. And by applying the social theory of Pierre Bourdieu and others, you argue that despite conventional wisdom, college sports overall actually helped to reproduce the segregation of blacks and whites over time and rich and poor as well. Do I understand that argument correctly? Yes, thank you. That was very well said. I need to write that down so I'll pitch my book that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, but early in the book, you argue that the state and the state's actions uh, shape access to spaces like universities. And you write that, quote, cultural institutions like sports, schools, and families build collective agreement to the existing social order and further the state's presence in our daily lives. And I, I must say, forgive me for saying this, but this almost sounds like a libertarian argument, is it? Yeah, so this is really complicated. And all I'll say is that those of us in the critical spaces, I guess we get comfortable of holding two oppositional ideas in our head at the same time. So uh, yes, I'm very critical of what you would consider the state, which is both formal and informal workings of government in our daily lives. Yet, I think if you were to ask me how I politically identify, I would not say I identify as a libertarian. I do think there are basic minimum humans need, and, and we do need some way of allocating that for folks. But what I try to locate, I'm trying to tie the research into other fields that have really looked at the way what we call the state. Again, it's a complicated entity in our lives, but we know that this organization of governments have a long history in the United States of preserving the status quo, preserving certain hierarchies, ensuring that there is docility and obedience to what the state wants out of us in our daily lives and obedience. And so what I tried to do is put sports into this context, which often we aren't thinking about sports in that context. And we aren't thinking about the way it really is a direct state institution, just like our voting systems are, our school systems are, other things that might, it might be more familiar for us to locate the state's workings in there. And so I try to put sport in that mix and really get us to think about where and how we could see the state's presence in ensuring these systems of inequity are being pervasive in our daily lives. Can you give my listeners an example of where you think the state doesn't exist? Doesn't exist? Yeah, because by your definition, it seems like it's everywhere. It is. I know. That's Wow, that's a really good question. I would... Oh. Yeah, I don't think, I think the purpose of how it's expanded in particularly the late 20th, early 21st century, we, I can't think of one. And part of why I'm having a struggle with this, and this might help the listeners with this, is the state is also ideological, which means my first thought was like, maybe inside of our minds, but that's not even true because it really, one of the biggest things that we do as kind of state subjects is internalize what it means to be part of a country, a part of a community. And so even how you understand yourself and your existence to the world is shaped through those kind of state logics of, are you a citizen of America or are you not? Like that question is already a state level question that's going to influence every interaction you have in your life. Okay. So you also write that, quote, the state coordinates across and entwines various forms of power, including race, gender, class, sexuality, nationality, and religion. Distilling state power to one mode or one form inaccurately portrays the workings of inequity. Throughout the book, I interlace insights from scholars who have documented the colonial white supremacist, patriarchal, 
capitalist and neoliberal aims of the state to broadly understand what social, cultural, political, and economic conditions facilitate the unequal conditions under which athletes ascend to college. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I want to invite you to try to do so for the listeners. Yeah, so it's a couple theoretical as well as political moves I'm trying to do here. So the first is that we're often looking at power, which really is an unequal relationship in that one group might have the ability to take resources away from another group, could be how you could think about it. Those of us who study power are often taught about it in discrete ways. So we think about our economic system, for instance, who has money, who doesn't, what your job is, what it isn't, as if that's one working. And then we'll think about something like race of what is your racial identity? What is your racial grouping as another one? And then we'll think about gender as a form of power. And these are very often taught and thought about and researched in discrete ways. Now, Black feminists have been working for a very long time to get us to see the intersection across those three. But I think many scholars still don't do that in their work. They're not actually doing that difficult sense-making of trying to figure out okay, how is it that race interacts with class, that interacts with gender in these kind of complex and difficult ways that are not always going to lead to predictable outcomes or effects, and there's going to be inconsistencies in, in how that works. And so that's one intervention I'm trying to make, is that when we look at something like sports, all three, among other forms of power, but those are the three I focus on, all three of those are always present in these really interesting and complex ways. Here's a more concrete example. So I was talking about earlier that being in a white suburb is automatically going to advantage you, but being black in a white suburb has very different effects um, mm -hmm. and does route your athletic trajectory differently than being white in a white suburb. And this is one of the themes I try to take up and try to really talk through. And I learned from black participants in my study about how they were funneled into track and also gravitated towards track because that was the area where they saw other black people mm -hmm. felt more comfortable. They felt more supported and they felt more free from the harms of, of racism. So that would be an example of where we see just because you have economic resources, if you're in a different race than the predominant white race, your journey to college might be routed in different ways. And so we can't make it just a class only story. Also with gender, even though women are getting access to college and these protected set of quotas, if you will, they are able to have their own teams, their own recruitment process where they're not competing against men. There are devastating effects of that gender grouping that has occurred um, in our society. And so just because you might be from a middle or upper class community, just being a woman in and of itself puts you at the bottom of the pecking order in sports. And so those are some of the ways I was trying to attune for how there's this inner relationship across multiple power structures within our society as well as within sports. Thank you. And so your argument is about how the state and its laws over time have shaped college sports in a, really in a white and patriarchal image. And towards that end, you note that, quote, redlining laws made ghettos and that white flight to the suburbs and the policing of black and brown neighborhoods further led to the reproduction of a de facto racial segregation, uh, close quote. And you argue that the, quote, U.S. state is an ideological engine and that in partnership with digital and analog media platforms, the state has marketed the narrative that America is an open and upwardly mobile society, close quote. But in fact, your book lays waste to this idea that sports help young athletes ascend to a higher socioeconomic strata. Instead, you argue that, quote, Freedom 
to choose what neighborhood to live in, what school to attend, and what sport to play is the freedom the state unequally extends to Americans, close quote. In this way, it seems you conclude that college sports actually reproduce what you call lateral rather than stimulate upward mobility. And you draw on this sense of Gramscian social common sense to explain how these narratives bolster state power and control. And so my question is how much of it are these structures, these infrastructure, as you mentioned, where you're born, where you're raised, um, what access you have to certain sports, what access you're denied, how much of it is that and how much of it is the desire among certain groups to play certain sports, some of which are less competitive to get college scholarships than others. And then, of course, Title IX bringing those quotas, as you mentioned before, that's one of those structures as well. So it seems to me there's the kind of this difficult question to answer regarding which one of these mechanisms, structure or culture, is really creating this broken system. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I landed on both and maybe it's again, my disciplinary origin and part of why I pulled on Gramsci is I think Gramsci does a really good job of making us see that there are these determining structure effects. So again, if we keep using money, cause it seems to be a concrete example, if you were born into a family that no one has to work cause they have that much wealth, that's going to set you on a very different lifestyle than if you're having to work for a living and it's going to create a whole different material reality for you and your family and, and what you go through. But really what enlivens the fact that those two different worlds can exist separate from each other and get perpetuated over time are these questions of culture. If we were to just look at numbers in the United States, for instance, we know that the vast majority of people come from lower income neighborhoods, communities, families, than of highly upper income. So we have numbers on our side, yet why haven't we had a massive class rebellion of toppling down the billionaires and, and all of that? Because that is in our power and we as humans could resist. You could have a revolution, but what's stopping it? And so those questions of how these structured relationships continue to maintain themselves over and over are these questions of culture and ideology and belief systems and what we value and what we don't. And so I take the one big belief system that I take on is this belief in meritocracy or this idea in America that part of why we don't topple down those in power is because we believe one day we could become them or we're cultivating this notion that one day someone from a low-income community could become a wealthy billionaire. And that belief that's possible is a very powerful sense of why we are keeping these systems alive in our daily lives. And so Sport is something that has been studied across a lot of disciplines as one of the primary ways that we train people in these senses of culture and ideology that by tuning into a sport event or attending a sport event in person, you are getting taught certain messages about how society works, that it's not just staying on nuts and bolts of the game, that it's actually telling us that athlete worked this hard and look, they're the best on the team and they're doing this and that. And there's constantly these narratives being generated about sport that are not contained to sport itself, that we carry with us into these other institutions. And we also know that other institutions call upon sport to do that work for us. So Politics, for instance, is constantly pointing at sports and talking about using sport examples to amplify these myths about the workings of society. And so long way of saying, yes, I think it's a both and <laughs> structure, culture. And to your other question that you were saying is what, is it a structure that's determining all of this or is it individual choice, some combination of both? 
where I landed in the book is I think in sport, we over attribute whether or not people play sport to begin with to a choice. And we over attribute what sports they play to a choice to love, to desire, they were pulled to it, this, that, and the other. And I'm really just trying to upend that because since I think we don't have a world in which every single person is exposed to every single kind of athletic activity, we can't know that. And so we are trapped in what are those things available to us in our life for us to make decisions within. And so if you're given a really narrow set of decisions, you're only making a choice within that. And you might've made a completely different choice if you'd had a much broader set of decisions. Thank you. We're talking about these myths that mm-hmm. exist and they're really powerful, as you note. And you, you pinpoint the NCAA as the organization that reproduces this myth most and that its power over the intersection of school and sport really gives it this undue influence almost to shape this social common sense. But you also argue that the NCAA's statements about opportunity rarely state who the opportunity is for. And as your book notes, this, these overwhelmingly go, at least if you're determining overwhelming by the number of athletic scholarships to white middle-class athletes. And what we see on television are two sports that happen to be dominated in numbers by African-Americans. But those two sports are only one of what, 38, 40, mm-hmm. roughly three, three dozen sports that a lot of universities sponsor. So that distinction seems absolutely essential to understanding this ecosystem. And I think your book does a great job of doing that. But as I was reading, I thought about sports fans Mm. and I wanted to read more about that. But I wonder where they fit into the argument because it felt like your book was an indictment of this system that, that creates these or perpetuates really these inequalities. But I wonder if we are laying blame, whether some of the reproduction of the system must go to those fans who watch these sports and keep the fuel, they are the fuel for the media outlets, for the advertisers, for all of the big companies that are growing money and the universities themselves mm-hmm. for investing so much in these these yeah. two sports pretty much. No, absolutely. And again, we're, as researchers, we're always trying to find our niche. And I feel like particularly within sociology and media studies, there's lots of great work, I think, implicating fans. So I would say, yes, you're absolutely right. It just ended up not being the major focus of my book. But one thing I would put a caveat on that for when I did start doing more of a research into the history of college sports, universities created the markets and fandom around specific sports. So back to this choice, what do we like? What do we don't? These markets have been, we were born into them. So we are told before we are even conscious that football, basketball, and baseball are the main sports you should watch in America. And those have been very intentionally created in universities. A lot of folks forget that our big commercialized events happen in universities first, not in the professional leagues. Professional leagues are a much later innovation. And it maybe it's because I'm in education, but that's why I always keep returning to the university and some of these educational institutions, because they were the ones creating this interest, creating the marketing around it, trying to bring community members in, telling them you'll like this. And so they need to shoulder that blame too with fans. And they're still doing it to this day. It's not just they built it and then walked away. You look at the marketing engines that are in universities to get people to keep showing up to a football game. If you were to pivot and start putting some of those resources to women's basketball, for instance, you could develop a huge fan base around it, but we're not putting the resources there. We're putting them in these markets that are proven, but they're proven because they've been continuously invested in over and over and over again. 
Yes, they've been proven to be true money makers over time. And so the investments keep coming as a result. And I think your study shows that the college admissions process helps to reproduce class and racial inequality. But I sense that by focusing just on this moment of admission and the recruitment process, right, that you're not giving a lot of power or in some sense, giving short shrift to the education that takes place within sports and the participation itself. And in my research, I've found that that there's quite a bit of growth that happens there. And so you write, quote, when we celebrate the stories of those African-American athletes who succeed, we disguise the harm done to those who pursued the same path, but never became Rhodes Scholars or professional athletes, close quote. So can you please elaborate on that argument? Yeah, so I think, so in that section of the book, what I'm also talking about is how we essentially normalize the really difficult pathways that certain Mm -hmm. Americans are just born into and have to live. Mm -hmm. And when we say stuff like you can use sport to uplift yourself from poverty, we're often talking about folks that are living in very desperate, awful times and not talking about what can we do to make it so that folks don't have to suffer like that. And instead we say stuff like they can find their own relief from that suffering if they do something like sports. And yes, I not at all, I don't at all want to take away from your point, which is sports are, there are millions uh, or infinite lessons you can learn in terms of personal development, communal development, but how, you know, is that going to actually let you feed yourself and your family if you, at the end of the day, or allow you to buy a house or allow you to get a job? These are all questions that we have not sorted out as a society, but we give Mm -hmm. these really simple answers to, which is basically, yes, (laughs) if you pursue sports, it can be this answer to all of, of society's problems. And instead I'm trying to push back against that narrative and say, no, the folks that are ascending in sports also had many other options. So that's the other thing about, you know, Mm -hmm. focusing on who's benefiting from this admission system they would have gone to college regardless, most of them, most if not all. And they said that to me. And it was really just this way to get a little bit better of a college or a little more advantage. And so if we're designing a system that's giving more advantage to already advantaged people, that's one of the ones that I want to, I'm calling out as why are we doing this? This is really unfair. And especially what it's disguising in the process, which is that quote that you had said at the beginning, which is disguising the fact that not everyone has a chance, that there are really dire consequences to some people who pursue this, and then might not even graduate from high school because they focus so much on sports. And then they're not even able to get a high school degree, or they're not able to, you know, go on to college and Mm. uplift themselves that way. Do you see it as a form of propaganda? It's a good question. Sports itself or meritocracy? This myth of meritocracy (laughs) that you highlight in your book. Yeah, yes. I use the word ideology because it is, ideology I think does a better job of capturing how it transforms how we relate to everyone and our whole sense of the world. Like we really internalize ideologies and it shapes what we do with the rest of our life. In a way that I'm not as I don't know enough about how strong of a uh, impact propaganda could have. So if anything, I think it's worse. If that's a bad word you want to use to describe it, I think the problem is way more entrenched and difficult to disrupt than mm. just because I think with prop. I, my understanding would be if you could get a different message out there, this could all change tomorrow. Propaganda might be more fleeting. Just get a new message in the system. But this is we have whole we have. 300 years of a nation's history built into believing that this is how our society works and teaching us in 
every set of our life and our families and our schools and our political system and our media, like it is so entrenched as a belief system that this is how society operates, that I think it's going to take a much bigger excavation to get out of our systems than simply just replace a narrative here or there. That's so interesting that ideology in your mind is worse than propaganda. I wouldn't have (laughs) thought that, but uh, I appreciate your answer that. And and beyond all of that, of course, it's the Horatio Alger story, right? It's the American dream, this rags to riches story that I think people want to believe. How much does it matter if people believe it or not? If people believe it and then they continue to work and they do feed their families, if they're able to. Obviously, in many cases, people aren't. And as you say, if a young child from a low-income area puts all of their efforts into athletics and nothing into academics, and then they come up short, they don't get the college scholarship, they don't even go to college, then you're looking at a really tragic story, aren't you? And yet I think there are many other stories, which you don't highlight in your book, that suggest to me that there are many instances where the belief the faith that people have in this meritocracy leads them to success in another form. It socializes them into what you might think of as the Protestant work ethic, which really dominates American society more than anything else, don't you think? Yeah, Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I think the idea of rewarding people for merit is not a problem. And the idea of getting people to feel motivated, to wanna invest in themselves, to better themselves, None of those things are a problem. I think the problem becomes when we have such vast inequities in who can develop what talents and abilities and skills, and yet we're told every step of the way, no, we have a level equal playing field. That's where I think the problems become Mm -hmm. for many reasons. And the problems being, first and foremost, we are not actually, if you take a utilitarian model, We have so much talent loss in the United States due to our education system. Like we are not actually trying to fully educate to the best of our capacity, what a country like the United States could do. We are not trying to do that to every child in this country. And so there's just gonna be vast amounts of people that could be the next innovator, the next this, the next that, that are just lost because they're not given that opportunity. And we're giving those opportunities in other areas. And so again, that's where I end up falling back into these more macro effects of like, how can we think about what is what we are losing by not actually providing, not delivering on this promise of we are telling people every American has a chance if they work hard enough, do enough, do, you know, are able to have enough natural talent plus grit, they can ascend and and that's just not true. And we know it over and over. And that if it does happen, it is a whole set of alignments and luck and things that have come together. It is not the rule of how our society operates. That the rule is that those who are born into families have resources, have really strong institutions around them, have healthcare, have a safe existence, all these things, you are gonna be a much better contributor um, to society in the long run because you've been set up for that. And so that's more of what I, why I end up kind of focusing on those questions in the book. If I understand it correctly, the idea being that sports are portrayed as this level playing field and therefore people begin to think that life is like sports. Exactly. And that it is a level playing field. That's very interesting. So I wonder if we can get down to brass tacks then, because what do we do about all of this? That's always my inclination is to understand problems, but then try to envision solutions. And 
you do get to that in your book at the end. And so I want to get to that. But the first thing I want to ask is, why didn't you choose more stories in your book about athletes who you felt like were succeeding, however you would define that success? It seemed to me that the athletes that succeeded were succeeding not because of their efforts, but because of the system and the resources that they were born into. And you talked about the long history of American society. If you go way back, I suppose you might say that some of those uh, families would be benefiting. Their resources may be the outcome of systems of slavery and segregation and redlining, all these things that you go to uh, great length in your book. And so how much of a factor is effort in your analysis, if at all? Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you were originally asking about with methodology and life histories is that yes. a lot of this came from them. So why I focus on the communities and social networks they're enmeshed in is that's what they told me mattered. And so mm -hmm. I think they had a really heightened awareness and, and maybe this was because they knew I was a college athlete and they were college athletes. And maybe we all just accept it as that neutral baseline. Like, of course you have to work hard. There has to be some level of you're showing sure. up to practice. You're giving your best. Sure. But I also think we want to give that credit to most people. Like if they were in this scenario, they're going to work hard. And so for me, one of my questions for participants is what was enabling your success at these various points, or what are you attributing to your success? And mm -hmm. these were the answers and stories they gave me. They weren't by and large telling me, oh, it was because I woke up at 5 a.m. every day and did an extra set of push-ups and did that and did this. It was if that was happening, it was, oh, because I had two teammates that said we should do extra workouts together. And I had a coach that was helping me in this way. And I had parents that were driving me to the gym and doing this, that, and the other. And so it's really just trying to show the stories again from them was that no one does this alone. And sure. so effort is often considered as an individual factor. And so they were being really honest, candid, and explicit about all the support systems that they had that was putting them in a position when they put their effort forward, they would get a result, but they could never have done that without, again, these elaborate community, social team resources at each level. And that effort, as you say, it's not really an individual characteristic. It's a product or it's something that's allowed to flourish in a way after others around. So they have this kind of attitude of gratitude, but they also, it seems like maybe in some cases had a knowledge of their own privilege. Yeah. And I haven't done a study with non-athletes, so maybe I'm biased in this, but I love just how candid they were. So mm -hmm. yeah, you would think, I know that when I've talked to folks who've interviewed, say elites who are trained in knowing the right thing to say when you're asking questions, I don't even necessarily know that they would have called themselves privileged, but when you ask, okay, how did you become an athlete? It was really just they thought that we were thinking that through together and they were just saying this happened and this happened and putting the, that story together. And they weren't trying to hide anything or be dishonest. It was just, here's what happened. And so I've in a follow-up study right now. So I'm interviewing, re-interviewing, I've re-interviewed about half of the original participants. Mm -hmm. And they have said that one of the things they really liked about this is they learned in this process too. So they really, I think we're coming to an understanding of the privilege, just again, through the interview process we were having and also through that opportunity to reflect upon their life in a way that they aren't given that opportunity. Most humans aren't <laughs> in a structured way, but in their mm -hmm. really busy, difficult college lives, they were able to set aside two hours for me to do this kind of really deep dive into their life. And I think we all learned a lot through that mm -hmm. process. Yes, definitely. And so 
it seems to me that the suggestions you're making involve going beyond what you call race neutral approaches, which you argue maintain the status quo of white dominance in education. Mm -hmm. And you also follow the Harvard law professor, Lonnie uh, Guinier, I believe is how you pronounce the name, Guinier's notion of confirmative action. In other words, that universities should confirm their democratic values by enforcing admissions criteria, which are inclusive, transparent, and accountable. What exactly would that look like to you? Yeah, thank you. Good questions. Um, so I think the first big part of the solutions are addressing everything that we've been talking about, all these inequities prior to college, prior to that moment of admission. And what Dr. Gunier is pointing us towards is that the federal government, our legal system has actually empowered colleges to by and large design their own admission system. So there is no federal mandate that says you have to design admissions in XYZ way. But the way they've used that discretion has often tended towards preserving elitism is one of the ways I call it, but really tending towards not ensuring that say every American, you know, has access to higher ed. And so what Gunier gets us to think about is these universities, by and large, are nonprofit institutions, even the private ones. So this is a misnomer, but that means that they're seen as public entities. They're not having to pay taxes because we are saying they're doing a public good. Right. And part of that public good tied in the American system is democracy, which should be ensuring that we have, again, maximal access to the public, to these institutions, to making sure that they are transparent, you can see in what's happening. And then the third and most important part, that accountability, is that the public can see what's happening, so then we can say there's a problem with it, and then hopefully there would be some sort of change. And so there should be this adaptive um, process occurring within our admission systems. And this is not how higher ed admissions generally works. They're usually driven by more clandestine processes, if you will. And so with athletics specifically, in some of my other writings, I think I give more prescriptive solutions of what that could look like. I think in the mm -hmm. book, I, I really step back a little bit because I think this, to stay, to adhere to what it would be to be democratic, we would want to have maximal public input into what should these admissions processes look like? It shouldn't necessarily just come from me, but the more prescriptive ones, I would say we could start at that transparency and accountability part. So first and foremost, transparency, how do you apply as an athlete? So having public portals, having ways that these are available, having universities accountable to doing maximal outreach efforts. So making sure that they're working with local state level community efforts to make sure that Folks know about how to apply, know what they should be putting in it, what coaches are looking for. That was another sub point of my book is that just athletes who knew how to market themselves in particular ways were highly advantaged because they knew the language that coaches were looking for. And again, that has little to do with merit at a certain point, just if you're able to position yourself better than others. Mm -hmm. So how can we make all those nitty gritty parts of this recruitment process just more transparent, more publicly available? And then having some kind of accountability in there, once it becomes more visible, then maybe folks might push back on it. So we've seen this in higher education. There's been lots of pushback from the public against, say, the SAT, which has been used you know, yes. over a century, but we know all the problems with it. And yes, it's been almost a century of pushing back on colleges. And we're finally getting colleges to recognize like this thing is not measuring what you think it is. And so the hope would be, if we can get a little more transparency in there about what colleges, let's say, are using to measure their best athletes, 
maybe there could be a way we could be pushing back on that. And then that final part about really what's, how does all this link to the democratic mission? In Guyer's work, it makes a little more sense because she's a law professor. So she's looking at like law schools should be thinking about who are the lawyers we're putting out in the world. So right now law schools, and I'll mess up this statistic, but it's something crazy. 90% of lawyers are going into corporate areas of the law or back into politics. Sure. But we need lawyers across all fields. We need lawyers working in the public sector and the public good. And so she's basically saying, we need to make sure we have an admissions process that's ensuring we're selecting folks that are going to be going into all these different mm, right. areas of public work. And with athletics, that's a much more challenging question to grapple with. And it really gets at the heart of why do we have sports in schools at all? And who are sure. these athletes we're trying to bring into? And who do they want as, who do we want them to be as future leaders or people or whatnot? And so that is also why wound up back on falling onto the, I think this is just time for us to have more reflection and public comment on that and try to figure out, okay, what are we doing with this system? What do we want out of it? How does it go back to aligning with those more democratic missions? And then what would a system look like that could potentially do a better job of meeting those aims? Yeah, that is fascinating. And as you say, public institutions and private institutions, the distinction is maybe a little overstated, but I think in the public consciousness, the conventional wisdom, the social common sense, if you will, mm -hmm. is that private universities should be able to admit whoever they want to admit. And of course, we have many parochial institutions out there who are trying to create a certain kind of student body and trying to further certain kinds of values. And so there would be, I think, quite a lot of pushback on that idea if, if it were to pass. But I, I, I certainly share your idealism that in pushing forward a more democratic form of admissions, not just for athletes, but in general, would be a great step in the right direction towards creating a more educated population, which theoretically would help democracy survive. And, and these days, that is something that's on my mind. So you're right, quote, bringing democratic imperatives and incentives into college sports requires an institutional reorientation toward challenging the assumption that elite hierarchical competitive sports are superior to other forms of physical activity, incorporating a broad array of sport forms that are not inherently hierarchical, competitive, and bureaucratic, creating athletic cultures that value and reward commitments to individual and community growth and development, and building relationships with other political action groups dedicated to the radical reformation of a more inclusive and humanizing society. And Again, I share this idealism, I really do. I guess the questions that remain for us, at least as we envision this in our minds, are realistic ones, right? It, with boosters nipping at the heels of college presidents, could leadership in universities get this done, whether Congress intervened or not? Would you have boosters suing universities for taking away their football team or something to that effect? And then if you were successful to bring about these changes, would anyone watch these sports or would it lose all that media that it now has, which of course brings so much money into universities, which is, I think, why we have the pairing of colleges and sports because of all the money that it generates and then all the attention it generates, which the college presidents perceive to, to raise the admissions numbers. So I know that's a lot to ask, but who would pay for the undertaking of these alternative forms of physical activity? Good questions. I think like we've seen with the one of the biggest changes right now, the name, image, and likeness, mm -hmm. uh change to the NCA. 
unfortunately, my feeling is that these changes are not going to come from within the university. It's going to, they're going to come from without and people are on the outside and people are going to end up demanding it of mm-hmm. universities at a certain mm-hmm. point. And that's actually where we've seen any form of substantive change within universities and with sports in particular has always been outside agitation. So back to football, I think one of the things like whether universities want to admit it or not is we are going to have folks or we already see patterns of folks just dropping out of football writ large because of the head injuries. So it's that. And I think there's also youth cultures are changing. Maybe a sport like football is not as preeminent or desirable in youth cultures as have been in past eras. We have a whole bunch of other things youth can be involved in. Technology is changing a lot. And so I think it's not unreasonable to think that actually some of this stuff might become easier to be palatable or able to make that change because there's going to be trends in terms of where folks are spending their time, energy, and effort. And again, we're already seeing that with football. The unfortunate thing I'll just say about football too, though, is folks are calling it that it's basically a white flight scenario with even more white folks dropping out. And so that's going to probably create an even more inequitable distortion of that effect. But maybe that inequitable distortion will make folks even more angry at what football currently is. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So I think that if for this idealism to happen, I think it is looking equal parts inside as outside the university. So what is it that people within communities like that are university towns, how could they get involved with pushing those university leaders to make different decisions, to ask for more of them, folks in the K through 12 systems, asking for more transparency, more resources, whatnot. And so thinking more of the citizenry in terms of putting that pressure on universities, rather than, as you said, when you think insular to the university, it makes complete sense why a president would act in that way because their incentives are aligned with, as you said, trying to court a donor, trying to get as much kind of attention for their school as possible, what have you. And so that's at least where I put my hope if I have it at the the moment is how can we have movements beyond the university to put the pressure on it to change? I'm glad you brought up the, the point of hope. You end your book on a hopeful note. And I must confess, Kirsten, that I... I didn't share that hopeful note after reading your book. What is your level of hope for the reformation of college sports or the reconstruction, I guess it would be under your suggestions? Yeah. So I, again, have the benefit of having spoken again. So five years later, so I did the interviews in first in 2015, and then I'm now doing a five-year follow-up. So started in 2020 and have continued to 2021. Awful time to be catching up with folks and what's going on in their lives. But I think that... I had already written that chapter, but I think I knew maybe this would happen based on my own experience as an athlete and where I've seen my own teammates develop just a different level of consciousness in the past five years. So to take one step back where that hope and I'm talking about is part of this project, what I was originally thinking about is that we know, and it's so well documented what I will call and others have called the racial exploitation that's occurring in revenue sports. And that when I started this project in 2015, I was really curious about, okay, if we show that things are bad in the non-revenue sports, maybe that will get kind of public agitation and people will see that, wow, if even it's hard for a swimmer to make it through college, why do we expect a football player who has twice the demands to be able to do it? 
And that was actually what the study was originally looking at. Why I ended with this hope was I was realizing like there actually could be this coalition built across the revenue and non-revenue generating sports because no change is going to happen if it's just coming, let's say, from football players themselves, that you're going to need buy-in across sports, across the divisions, uh, across communities in order to change this really big and complex system we're talking about. And so at the end of this whole, at all the interviews and, and going through all of that, I really saw a chance where even these very privileged, if you will, athletes who made it to college, and I, that's the story I tell in the first book, Hopefully what I will tell in subsequent books is what happens to them once they're in college and they become very disillusioned and disenchanted with what happens to them. And I think there is a really important place for them to make an intervention or be leaders in some kind of movement to say enough is enough. Like we should not keep investing in this system because it makes it again, next to impossible in the best of circumstances for athletes to be able to get a meaningful education and then take that education, you know, beyond college. And so their hope they had of all pursue sports so I can get into college and then have this wonderful college experience academically wasn't manifesting in, in the way they wanted. And to me, I think, and I hate to put it this way, but I think a strategic way around movement building would be you have to get buy-in from privileged folks to want to change these systems. The people who are most apt to benefit from them, you do need them to be part of the coalition. And so to see athletes who benefited from it, to say, no, I, I, if I could do it all again, I probably would have done it differently to me as a moment of like, okay, here's an opening. And then I'll also say to foreshadow what I've seen in the past five years, particularly the white athletes in my study who never thought about race, didn't talk about it, never had an understanding of their racial privilege. That has told their answers to those same questions have totally transformed in the past five years. And that has nothing to do with my study or my research. That's just what has been happening, I think, in the American consciousness. And so that also gives me a little more hope is that again, not coming through sport, but through other broader changes, we might be able to get athletes who historically, again, benefited from, never had an interest in getting involved in any of these movements, might be more apt to do so now than ever before. And then, yeah, then the difficult part is like, how do you bring that together and actually lead to the change? <laughs> Questions for another time. Yes, you're on your way, Kirsten. And I really appreciate you being on my show. It's yeah. been uh, a real pleasure for me. And I, once again, thank you. I've learned a ton. I really have. And I hope my listeners have too. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was so exciting. And, and thank you for doing such a deep dive in the book. I really appreciate it. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Very nice to meet you. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Well, that'll wrap up our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. My sincere thanks to Professor Hexstrom for sharing her work with me and for engaging in a sometimes difficult discussion about subjects that unfortunately remain taboo in our society. I hope you learned something from listening, and I hope you go out and get a copy of her book, Special Admission, and learn even more. Thank you all for listening, and have a great rest of your day.